Let's turn in our Bible today to Matthew chapter 26. So open up your copy of God's Word to Matthew chapter 26. Something that has bothered me for a long time, but hasn't really surfaced until now. And today is my wife's birthday, but she gave me a gift of spiritual disruption. It doesn't sound like a gift, but it truly is. She handed me a book, Ancient Future Worship, Proclaiming and Enacting God's Narrative by Robert Weber. And she had marked a chapter uh, that she suggested I read on communion. And uh, it, it confirmed this unease that I've had with communion. As a student of scripture, right? So here's the ultimate book. This is the final authority for faith and practice. Now we say that, but we actually struggle with living that out. So churches that put the Bible as the ultimate authority, but then they have policies that don't align with scripture. They have practices that don't align with scripture. And when it comes to the Lord's Supper, when it comes to Eucharist, when it comes to communion, those are all different ways of saying the same thing. To go to the Bible and, and ask the question, how should we observe this sacrament, right? A, a sacrament is a, uh, is a sacred observance. It's a, it's a holy ritual. And so as we go to God's word together, we go to the original Lord's Supper in Matthew chapter 26. I want us as much as possible to allow the word of God to deconstruct our preconceived notions about communion. And let me just be honest with you. I think I've been wrong. I think I've been wrong in how I've approached the Lord's table, how I've led others to approach the table of the Lord. And what do I mean by that? And I want to talk about it today. I want to teach on communion. This is how important this sacrament should be. Today, I just want to camp out around communion. And I want to drop down into the scripture, into the, the history of Christianity and allow God through his spirit to shape our convictions around the Lord's Supper. One author said, Eucharist was the focal point of God's presence in the ancient church. The Reformation made the word the center of God's presence. And today the presence of God is found in music. So I feel like as one who comes from a, a Baptist tradition, I feel like I'm missing something when I read the Bible and I study church history. I feel like we've overcorrected, right? And so in, with, with the reformers, in seeking to correct some of the abuses that were happening within the Catholic Church, we've overcorrected and we've veered into the other ditch. Whereas the, the Lord's Supper, there's something incredibly significant. There's something spiritually significant. There is something supernatural about the Lord's Supper. And I've missed that. I've missed it. Let's be honest. Some people attend church for the music. 
and with the emerging generations, that is really one of the core values of the emerging generations is musical worship. Some people attend church for the preaching. Some people attend church for the fellowship. But here's a convicting question. Would we attend church just for communion? Would we be excited if it was only communion? My wife and I have been talking about church, our ecclesiology, like what church should be. When you peel back the layers and you boil it down to the raw materials, right? would, would we still attend if all we did was read the Bible and observe communion? Would we be excited about the Lord's Supper or would we be disappointed? And I think it reveals a superficial discipleship when we are not excited about the main things of Christianity. What if all we did was pray and talk to God and hear from God? What if all we did was read his word out loud together? What if all we did was observe communion? Would that be enough for me? Would that be enough for you? One author said the early church fathers did not see bread and wine as, mere, as a mere human reminder of Jesus. Instead, they approached bread and wine with a clear sense of the supernatural. God's real presence at the Lord's table is a mystery. But there's something else happening here. Right? Let me read this in 1 Corinthians 11. This is one of those passages that is abundantly clear, but it makes us very uncomfortable. Right? Again, when we claim that the Bible is the ultimate authority for faith and practice, when we are unapologetically bibliocentric and we hold up the book, this is very clear. The Apostle Paul is teaching a church in Corinth how to do the Lord's Supper and they were doing it wrong, and there were severe consequences of mishandling the Lord's Supper. Honestly, it's better to not do it than to do it in the wrong way. In 1 Corinthians 11, verse 17, the Apostle Paul says, In the following directives, I have no praise for you. Your meetings do more harm than good. In the first place, I hear that when you come together as a church, there are divisions among you. And to some extent, I believe it. And so he's talking to a church that is observing the Lord's Supper every single week, if not multiple times a week. And he's saying that you're actually doing more harm than good, because as you gather around the table, there are there are fractures, there are relational fractures, there is division in the body. And he said it's hypocritical. It's hypocritical to come to the Lord's table with this pretense of unity when there is division below the surface, relational division, this socioeconomic division that was happening in Corinth, the spiritual division where you have graduate level Christians and remedial Christians. And the Apostle Paul goes, listen, and this is very clear here. This is not up for debate. He says later, for those who eat and drink without discerning the body of Christ, eat and drink judgment on themselves. That is why many among you are weak and sick, and a number of you have fallen asleep. What the Apostle Paul is clearly teaching the church in Corinth is that because they are mishandling, disrespecting the Lord's Supper, that they some of them are 
physically sick and some of them have actually died as a result of mishandling communion. So there's this fear and trembling in my in my heart about approaching the table of the Lord. And and again, this I, I have been wrong in in how I've approached the table and how I've led others to think about the table and communion as as a foundational piece of our discipleship, rather than this auxiliary activity. It's something that is absolutely essential. It should be a main course. The communion, the Lord's Supper should never be an appetizer or a dessert. It is the main course of Christianity. It was for the early church, and it and it should be for Christians today. And it's such an important thing that if we don't properly understand it, if we pervert it, if we disrespect it, if there's an irreverence in approaching the table, it could lead to physical sickness or even death. That's heavy. But why, why don't we warn people about this? Right? Why do we just throw the elements out on a Sunday like they're jelly beans? Why do we trivialize the Lord's Supper so often where it becomes it becomes an optional accessory to Christianity? Oh yeah, the Lord's Supper. And we shrug our shoulders at the supper, at the table of the Lord. And we approach it in this, we approach it in this irreverent way. We approach it with this this lackadaisical attitude. And the Lord's Supper should come with a warning. If we believe the Bible, and if we believe that this part of Corinthians is inspired, is inerrant, then what was true for Corinth is true for every church. This, this The Lord's Supper is a universal sacrament. That means every church in every culture at every time observes the Lord's Supper. This is a key piece of Orthodox Christianity. So what they did in Corinth, they did in Ephesus. What they did in Ephesus, they did in Galatia. The seven churches in the book of Revelation, they observed the Lord's Supper. So this is not a, this is not a, the Apostle Paul is correcting a specific abuse, a local abuse of the supper in Corinth. But in doing so, he's teaching a universal principle for all Christians as we approach the table. And so some of you may not want to take communion today. Some of you um, might need to might need to reach out and in an effort to reconcile with people, especially brothers and sisters in Christ. Again, this is not a game. You know, I was I was having a conversation with a friend a while back about whether or not a church should observe com- communion during a time of of division and conflict. And my opinion then, and it is now, is before you do communion, study the Bible. Communion isn't based upon church tradition. Communion isn't based upon a church calendar. It's based upon scripture. And to, to, and to study 1 Corinthians chapter 11, and this is this is very serious. I'm not trying to be overly dramatic here. I mean, this is what the Bible says. And I'm just trying to be a good steward. I'm just trying to be a good communicator of what is abundantly clear in the scriptures. 
We attend church for the music. We attend church for the preaching. We attend church for the programming. But would we attend just for the supper? God's real presence at the table is a mystery, like the incarnation. It's a mystery. And that's one of the things that wasn't included in my discipleship was the mystery. Every good theology contains mystery. Because who are we that we can slice and dice the Almighty and put him in neat little boxes on our theological shelves where we slap a bow on the box and we walk away feeling good about ourselves because of the theological system that we've put God in? The mystery of the incarnation, where we believe as Christians that God became man. That's the incarnation, the deity of Christ, where Mary was a virgin and God, God put Jesus in her womb. That's supernatural. Jesus was born without a sinful nature so that he could live this perfect life, so that he could be the perfect sacrifice, so that he could accomplish what Adam, what Adam failed to do. Jesus, the incarnation. It's a mystery. How can the God of the universe be in human form? How could Jesus be fully human and fully God? It's a mystery. And yet there's this mystery as we approach the table. There should be where there's this, there is the real presence of Jesus in the elements, a mystery, the incarnational presence of Christ in the bread and the wine. But the mystery of God's presence has been lost and replaced with empty symbolism. When we study the doctrine of the Lord's Supper in various Christian denominations, there's different approaches. And I just want to take a moment to highlight a few of them. Roman Catholics believe in something called transubstantiation. That's a big word. Transubstantiation means that they believe that the bread and the wine are blessed by the priest during the mass and the elements actually are transformed in the, into the physical body and blood of Jesus Christ. Now, the reformers disagreed with this, and I believe rightly so, right? Where the reformers disagreed with transubstantiation. And so you had Martin Luther that stepped away uh, from the Catholic Church. This was in the in the 15th and 16th centuries. You had um, John Calvin and others. And so Martin Luther was really the, the catalyst for the, for, the, for the Protestant Reformation, but he believed in something called consubstantiation. It's another big word, but it simply means that the bread and wine coexist with the body and blood of Christ that Jesus Christ is present in, with, and under the bread and the wine whenever the Lord's Supper is celebrated. The analogy that people sometimes use is like a sponge full of water. The sponge isn't the water. The water isn't the sponge, but the two are together. They are connected. There's another one who I am a disciple of this guy. His name is his name was Ulrich Zwingli. <laughs> I mean, he was around in the time of Luther. And so you had the Protestants breaking away from the Roman Catholic Church. And, and one of the primary disagreements and the reason for the fracture was the Lord's Supper, communion. But even after the Protestants stepped away, there was, there was some very strong disagreement within these reformers about 
how one should view the Lord's Supper. Now, Supper. Now, Zwingli, he taught the memorial view of the Lord's Supper. He said that Christ commanded us to do this in remembrance of him, and that's really it. It's an act of remembrance. It's a memorial. The bread and the wine are merely symbols reminding us that Christ's body was broken for us and his blood was shed for us. And so you have uh, the, the Catholic view of, of transubstantiation, where they believe the, the bread and the wine actually physically become, after the priest blesses them, they actually physically become the body and the blood of Jesus. And you have Luther's view of this consubstantiation, where they don't they don't actually become the body and the blood of Jesus, but but the real presence of Jesus is saturating the elements. Then you have Calvin, another reformer who, who came along a little bit later than Luther and Zwingli. And Calvin's view is that Christ's human body is, pre, is, is currently present in heaven, his glorified body. And it's not that Jesus descends and possesses the elements so much as we ascend and partake of his body as it currently is through the Holy Spirit. So the Holy Spirit, Calvin believed, is the bond of the believer's union with Christ. And, and so those who partake of the bread and the wine in faith are also by the power of the Holy Spirit being nourished by the glorified body and blood of Christ. And so these are the different positions that people have on communion. And the way I was discipled was very much under Zwingli, where it was just a memorial. So from my earliest days, I can remember the Lord's Supper being something that was tacked on to what we were already doing. And, that, as, and I'm not blaming, I'm not throwing these churches under the bus um, because I, I've done the same thing. It's really how I was discipled. It's how I was indoctrinated. But I'm telling you, you know, I'm learning these new things about God through his word. And there's this sacred disruption. There's this holy disequilibrium that is necessary for our growth in godliness. And so there's been this, there's been this disruption around the Lord's Supper. There's been this disequilibrium created in my spirit about the Lord's Supper, where it was taken so lightly for all of my Christian experience, where we wouldn't even know it was the Lord's Supper. We'd show up at church, and then at the end of the service, you know, the deacons would start coming forward, and we'd have these silver platters, and they'd have this white, <laughs> they'd have this white tablecloth, and then, you know, people are grabbing their keys and they're getting ready to go home and they have their keys in one hand and they have the body and the blood of Jesus in the other hand. And, and nowadays it's this. We have our cell phone in one hand and we have the elements, the sacred element in the other hand. And we're planning what we're going to do for lunch as we take the supper. God forgive me. God forgive us for making light of his body and his blood, that we have overcorrected, right? Where we see it as something that's an optional accessory. You know, it's something that should be foundational to our faith. Communion, the table of the Lord, is 
essential. It's not an optional accessory. It's not, it's not an auxiliary part of Christianity. It, this is the main course. And God forgive us for pushing it to the outer courts. And so what I want to do in my own life is allow God to deconstruct my discipleship and to put the pieces back together around what is most biblical. Not, it, not what is biblically allowable. Well, we, we shrug our shoulders and we say, well, I mean, you know, churches are autonomous and so this church can do it this way. This church can do it that way. Yes, that's true, but there are some fundamental universal truths about communion, about Christianity that should happen in every place of every time in every church. And communion is one of those things where there's, there's a sacredness. There is a, there is a seriousness about it. And there is a celebratory note to the conclusion of it. Where as we approach the table, we, we are in some mysterious way connecting with the body and the blood of Jesus. As we, as we take the elements, the, the real presence of Jesus is, is saturating these elements so much so that they are more than mere empty symbols. So as we approach the table, as Jesus invites us to the table, one author says, in eating and drinking, we experience a foretaste, a foretaste of the heavenly feast a foretaste of the Supper of the Lamb, we get, a, we get a sample of what is going to happen in full. And so we take the Alpha and the Omega into our mouth. And there is a power there. And yes, if we mishandle it, there's a power unto judgment. But there's also a power unto blessing, where we take the Alpha and Omega into our mouth and the the presence of Jesus flows through our vein and invigorates our faith. And in doing so, we are recommitting ourselves to the incarnational life. Whereas God was present in Jesus, Jesus is present in us. To let his body come to life, to let his blood be active in my life, in my faith, in my family, in my relationships, in my church. The early church observed communion every single week. The church in Acts, it was a weekly observance. The early church, it was a weekly observance. The reformers advocated a weekly observance. This is a Martin Luther, John Calvin. They taught that communion should be observed every Sunday. Zwingli was the one that advocated for a quarterly observance of the Lord's Supper. And man, have we become disciples of Zwingli. Ultimately, we're not disciples of reformers. We're not followers of Calvin. We're not followers of Luther. We're not followers of Zwingli. We're followers of Jesus. And as we approach his table, Jesus is the main character. It's his table. It's his body. It's his blood. It's not us setting the table and inviting Jesus to bless the meal that we've prepared. No, no. God forgive us for that posture of arrogance. Let me read for us. I'm going to read this passage of the original 
Lord's Supper. And then we'll have a time of reflection and repentance. In Matthew chapter 26, beginning in verse 17. On the first day of the festival of unleavened bread, the disciples came to Jesus and asked, Where do you want us to make preparations for you to eat the Passover? He replied, Go into the city to a certain man and tell him, The teacher says, My appointed time is near. I am going to celebrate the Passover with my disciples at your house. So the disciples did as Jesus had directed them and prepared the Passover. When evening came, Jesus was reclining at the table with the twelve. And while they were eating, he said, Truly I tell you, one of you will betray me. They were very sad and began to say to one another, Surely you don't mean me, Lord. Jesus replied, The one who has dipped his hand into the bowl with me will betray me. The Son of Man will go just as it is written about him, but woe to that man who betrays the Son of Man. It would be better for him if he had not been born. Then Judas, the one who would betray him, said, Surely you don't mean me, Rabbi. Jesus answered, You have said so. While they were eating, Jesus took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to his disciples, saying, Take and eat. This is my body. Then he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink from it, all of you. This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. I tell you, I will not drink from this fruit of the vine from now on until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. When they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. There's this incredible intimacy around the table, this intimacy with Jesus. And he is the one that's initiating it. Don't you see? The supper is about him. It's not about our ability to remember. It's about Jesus and what he has accomplished and is accomplishing. And that intimacy around the table is what I pray the Holy Spirit will create now in our hearts as we connect primarily with Christ. We approach this time around your table with a hushed reverence. Lord, forgive me. Forgive me for making the supper trivial. God, forgive me. Forgive us, Lord, for making light of something that is so incredibly heavy. And help us now to sit under the weight of it, the privilege of approaching your table that you have set. Lord, it's not us creating these elements it's your body, it's your blood. And so in these next moments, search us, O oh God, and know our hearts. Test us and know our anxious thoughts. See if there be any offensive way in us and lead us in the everlasting way. In Jesus' name, amen. If you're looking for ways to connect, find us on Facebook or YouTube. Just check out the show notes for details. Thank you for tuning in. I hope and pray that this has been a blessing in your life. And I hope that you'll continue the conversation with God by opening his word for yourself. Love y'all.